Welcome to 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore with your host, Matthew Miller. We give you pint-sized, bite-sized pieces of supernatural monster lore, exploring their origins, their history, and their meaning to the human condition. Listen on, if you dare. <laughs> Matthew Miller, expert on all things monster and paranormal. I'm a horror writer from the dark and haunted swamps of Louisiana, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to my terrifying world. Check out my books on Amazon, beginning with Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story, which is volume one of the Gravedigger series. The Gravediggers are a punk rock band who keep crossing paths with all sorts of dark and evil, nasty creatures. It's horror and comedy, and it's super entertaining. And we're already uh, up to Volume 3. That's out recently. Volume 4 is coming soon. So we look forward to that. I also have some exciting news. I will be a vendor at Scarefest 2021 in Lexington, Kentucky next weekend, which is the weekend of October 22nd through 24th. It's a big deal, and the headliner celebrity is Bruce Campbell from the Evil Dead series. I'll be selling my books in booth number 510, 510. So if you're in the area, stop by, say hi. This is Season 1, Episode 4 of 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore, which is Part 4 of our Vampire set. So we've looked at the idea of the vampire, looked at some documented European cases of vampirism, and some vampires from around the world. And when I started preparing, I realized I neglected a very important piece of vampire history. Vampire cases right here in the good old USA. Yes, there are American vampire cases. They exist, and I neglected to tell you about them, so I apologize, but I'm going to make up for that now. In this episode, we're going to look at the New England Vampire Panic of the 1800s. Did you know there was such a thing? There was in New England, the New England Vampire Panic. It was a period of time in the USA, obviously in New England, and mostly in Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, but some other parts too, like Massachusetts, uh, during which time people truly believed that their loved ones were returning from the grave to visit them at night, to drink their blood, to make them ill. Now, keep this in mind, this vampire panic coincided with a tuberculosis outbreak, an epidemic. Keep that in mind for next episode when we talk about possible scientific explanations for vampirism. Now, remember at that time, there was no germ theory, there were no antibiotics, so um, uh, they called tuberculosis consumption, by the way, it consumed the body slowly and gradually until you died. And so people believed it was spread throughout a family by a dead family member returning to them and sucking the life out of them through their blood gradually. I myself well, I used to live in China, mainland China, and I got sick uh, with a lung problem. I went to the hospital and at first they thought it was tuberculosis, by the way. It turned out uh, my doctor did not agree, said it was probably Legionnaire's disease or severe pneumonia. I almost died. I was in the hospital a month, but they saved my life. But I can only imagine if tuberculosis is anything like what I experienced, you know, they're both terrible lung infections, bacterial, well, it's miserable, trust me. 
you do not want to get tuberculosis or Legionnaire's disease, and I can only imagine the suffering and pain of contracting that at a time when there were no antibiotics and they didn't even know what was happening. So, as with the European cases we've talked about in the previous episodes, the survivors basically dug up the bodies, found some of them to be plump and rosy, found liquid blood in the organs. They were declared to be vampires. Even some prominent doctors of the time called them vampires. Also, as in the European cases, the bodies were staked, beheaded, reburied, but mostly the heart was removed and um, the heart was burned. There was a belief that consuming those ashes, either by actually eating them or usually mixing the, the, you know, the ash powder in water and drinking it, would cure or protect the living from, their, uh, from vampirism. Okay, let's look at some actual cases. We begin in 1793, this is the earliest case, in Manchester, Vermont. A churchman, a deacon, Captain Isaac Burton, exhumed his first wife, Rachel, in an attempt to save his second wife, Hulda. So, not sure exactly what went on there, but the, the good deacon was married twice. Um, his wife, Hulda, who was dying of tuberculosis, or consumption as they called it, he dug her up and he did the heart ashes thing, and the new wife consumed it, but it failed. Hulda died in September of 1793, so a failed attempt at stopping a vampire. Around 1810, we're not sure exactly of if that year is correct, but around 1810, another case in New Ipswich in New Hampshire, Dr. John Clough of uh, New Ipswich, he uh, wrote in um, Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, so this is a medical journal, Interesting. He says, in connection with this, meaning the vampirism cases, I cannot omit to mention a circumstance which occurred in this town, meaning New Ipswich, not 30 years since, and similar occurrences probably occurred in many other towns in New England. This was disinterring a human body, which belonged to a family all strongly predisposed to consumption, for the purpose of removing the heart, which was burned, the ashes of which were considered a sovereign remedy to those of the family who were still living and might be afflicted with the same disease. This only illustrates the fact that these elements of character, which held such a magic sway over the minds of men in ancient times, have not ceased altogether to influence the community in our comparatively enlightened day." End quote. So there's a doctor uh, describing you know, this, these cases in New Ipswich. Of course, he calls it a silly superstition and makes the point that just because we're modern and enlightened doesn't mean we're not, uh, <laughs> not uh, given to superstitions as well. Another case from 1816 to 1817 in Scioto County, Ohio. Uh, Henry Howell, a writer, uh, wrote this account. Uh, begin quotation, the family of Philip Saladay came from Switzerland, bought and settled on a lot in the French grant soon after the opening of the country for settlement. Her, that means, uh, this is me speaking, that means the Midwest at the time. Hereditary consumption developed itself in the family sometime after their location in Scioto County. The head of the family and the oldest son had died of it, and others began to manifest symptoms when an attempt was made to arrest the progress of a disease by a process which has been practiced in numerous instances, but without success. They resolved to disinter one of the victims, take his entrails, and burn them in a fire prepared for the purpose in the presence of the surviving members of the family. This was accordingly done in the winter of 1816 through 1817 in the presence of a large concourse of spectators who lived in the surrounding neighborhood and by Major Amos Wheeler of Wheelersburg. Samuel Saladay was the one they disinterred and offered up as a sacrifice 
to stop, if possible, the further, further spread of the disease. But like other superstitious notions with regard to it curing diseases, it proved of no avail. The other members of the family continued to die off until the last one was gone except George. Okay. Next, we have 1817 in South Woodstock, Vermont, a young man named Frederick Ransom. He was a student at Dartmouth College. So he becomes ill. He has consumption, likely caught it from a classmate, returns home, um, unfortunately dies. And so he's buried. The rest of his family begins to get sick. A doctor, an actual doctor, exhumed Frederick, burned his organs. The family consumed them. They all became ill and died anyway. So um, here's a college student whose family, you know, believes in vampirism. In, a, in the 1860s, we don't know the precise year, in Boston, of all places, um, we have uh, another case here. Now this one, I think it's funny, because so later on, so that happened in the 1860s. Later on in 1873, Dr. Lucy Abel, who uh, was present and uh, witnessed all this, she wrote this to the Massachusetts State Board of Health, open quotes. I should be sorry to be understood as recommending drunkenness as a cure, but I have known several instances where nearly all the family from five to nine children have successfully died of thesis. That's another word for consumption, i.e. tuberculosis, by the way. Continuing, she says, finally, one of the boys from sheer desperation took to excessive drinking of alcoholic stimulants. These boys are now past middle life and enjoying good health when last heard from. In two families, not less than five or six victims in each were carried off by consumption. In each, there was always one sick, and a short time before death, another would be prostrated, meaning buried. In one family, they resorted to that horrible relic of superstition, the burning of the heart, etc., of the dead, and the ashes were swallowed by the survivors in the hope that the fatal demon would be exorcised from the family, but it did not avail. But another son fell a victim, and then the alcoholic treatment was tried, not as an expected remedy, but as a means of forgetfulness of impending doom, and no deaths in the family have, to my knowledge, since occurred. All right, there you have it. A doctor says if you uh, get tuberculosis or vampirism, drink, and it'll cure it. Now, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what that's about. I don't know if the alcohol killed the bacteria. I don't see how that's possible. But anyway, it may just be coincidence, but I think it's funny. Now, the most famous case of all is that of Mercy Brown. Even her name sounds like something from a horror movie, right? Mercy Lena Brown. This is 1892, Exeter, Rhode Island. Its town still exists today. Definitely the most famous, but it follows, just like all the others, the same track. Just like those in Europe, just like the other ones in the, uh, the U.S. So Mercy's mother gets consumption. It spreads to the rest of the family, to her sister, brother, and finally to Mercy. Neighbor, uh, people who lived around them, neighbors, were a superstitious lot. They believed that one of the family members was a vampire who had the illness. Mercy dies, and two months after her death, her father, whose name is George, by the way, he was a skeptic. He did not believe in vampirism. He believed it was just a, a, an illness that spread. He, uh, he was convinced against his will, basically, to allow others to exhume the bodies of his family, all of the members. Every, uh, everyone's body, except for Mercy's, showed expected decomposition. In other words, they were decomposed at the rate or at the, in the state that they should have been you know, as, as compared to when they were buried. Mercy's body, though, alone was different. It showed almost no decomposition. It had fresh, meaning liquid blood in the heart, plump, rosy, and had actually turned in the grave. Now that part's interesting. I'm not sure of the explanation there. 
Now, note that her body, because of when she was buried, it was basically stored above the ground throughout the winter because they couldn't dig the hard winter ground. So, uh, and then they buried her after the winter. So she was, her body was basically in, you know, like a deep freezer, okay? So yeah, that uh, tends to preserve bodies. But turning in the grave, I'm not sure about that. That's kind of creepy if you ask me. Well, they find her body in that state. The villagers believe, all right, there we go. She's the vampire. So as usual, they cut out her heart, uh, mix, uh, burned it, mixed it with water. Her brother, surviving brother, the last child of the family to be alive, drank the water. That's very disgusting. Corpse water, right? And, uh, well, he died anyway. <laughs> it's interesting. In all of these cases, it's basically the same thing, right? Someone gets sick and dies. Other family members begin to get sick. The dead one is suspected of vampirism. They exhume the dead one, and the body's found to be rosy, plump, to contain liquid blood in the organs. The heart is removed and burned, most cases consumed by the family, and it usually doesn't work. They usually die anyway, except for the drunks. <laughs> they survived. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's all the same, right? This is, this is uh, centuries later, a different continent, but it's still the same kind of thing. Keep in mind, again, that this spate of vampirism occurred in the midst of a tuberculosis epidemic because we're going to be discussing next time the possible rational scientific explanations for all these cases of vampirism. I'm not taking a side at this point. We're going to explore the supernatural and the natural, and then maybe you can think about it and see what you think. So, um, by the way, uh, if you do contract tuberculosis, or especially COVID, don't drink and get yourself to a hospital quickly, okay? All right, next time uh, we're going to continue this. Thank you for listening to 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore with Matthew Miller. Sleep tight if you can.